So, uh, yes, thank you so much for coming. Um, this is uh, Dr. Booker. He is the Associate Dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions, um, and he's the Billy Graham Professor of Evangelism and Church Growth. Um, he received his Bachelor of Science from Kansas State University. I believe it was, it was in engineering, is that correct? correct? Mm -hmm. uh, Master of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Texas, and his THM and PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, Dr. Booker just started his 25th year at Southern Seminary. Congratulations, Dr. Booker. Thank you. Uh, in addition to his ministry at the seminary and to his family, he's also the senior pastor of uh, West Broadway Baptist Church here in Louisville. So uh, his time is very precious, and we're so thankful that he's here with us this morning. Um, I know Dr. Booker to be a humble man who is fully devoted to God's work and always seeks to share the gospel with others compassionately. Um, his personal evangelism class stands out as one of the most important classes that I took at Southern Seminary. And the lessons and the stories that he shares are um, absolutely incredible. Um, I only wish I would have taken his class sooner at Southern Seminary. I uh, took it in my last semester there. I wish I would have taken it a lot sooner. Uh, so I know you share my enthusiasm in uh, having Dr. Booker with us this morning. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Booker. Thank you, George. Uh, he introduced me as the Associate Dean of the Billy Graham School. Do you all know what an Associate Dean does? It, it's really a very simple job description. I get to do whatever the Dean does not want to be associated with. So, a very simple job description. I, I am professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I realize there are all different kinds of stereotypes about Baptists. Uh, I, I'm a Baptist who happens to love uh, Anglicans. Uh, when I am cut, I do not believe Baptist, I believe the body of Christ. And there are three different Anglican men who have had a significant influence on my life. One was the great pastor Richard Baxter in the 17th century English church. He wrote the book, The Reformed Pastor. Uh, Richard Baxter is the man on whom I wrote my doctoral dissertation. And I learned so much about pastoral ministry, about evangelism, about discipleship from studying his life. My dissertation supervisor was J.I. Packer, a name that you all should know. Uh, just went to be with the Lord earlier this year. Uh, great man, great theologian. Uh, he also wrote his dissertation on Richard Baxter back in 1950 at Oxford University in England. So Dr. Packer has had a great shaping influence on my life. And the, and the third is Dr. John Stott, longtime rector of All Souls Church in London, uh, great expositor of God's word, great pastor, great theologian. So uh, even though I am Baptist, I feel very much at home with my Anglican brothers and sisters and am delighted uh, to be with you. We're going to cover some material today. You have a handout there, but to begin with, I'm, I want to set a, a little bit of the context of what I hope that you all take away from this time this morning. I'm reminded of the story of the salesman, young college student who sold books during the summer to pay for his college tuition. And he came to this veteran old farmer and he said, sir, here is a brand new book on the latest and greatest farming methods. If you will buy this book, I guarantee you by this time next year, you'll be farming twice as good as you are right now or I'll give you a full refund. Well, this old farmer looked at this young salesman and said, son, I don't need to buy the book. I ain't farming half as good as I know how to right now. <laughs> and, and I think as we come to a training like this, we say, why, why do more training in witnessing? I ain't witnessing half as good as I know how to right now. Well, that can be said of all of us, but the key is not information, it's application. So as we go through this material today, that, that's how I want you to listen, not, not with a focus of information, oh, I, I learned something new, but with a focus on application. How can I apply this to my life? So let's begin. I entitled this, uh, As We Go, The Great Commission. Uh, we often translate Matthew 28, 18, or 28, 19 as an imperative, therefore go. But more literally, it would be as we go. As we go throughout everyday life, we're to be involved in making disciples. So the first step in that is to prepare our hearts. And in preparing our hearts, I think there are two questions that we need to ask and answer. The first question is, why don't we witness? 
Or why don't we witness as we should? And then second, why should we witness? So there on page two of your handout, I want to talk first about barriers to evangelism, or what I call overcoming walls to witnessing. There was a survey done some years ago by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It was a training, and they asked the people who were there, what, what is your greatest hindrance or barrier in evangelism? And, and they got a, a series of different answers to that, and, and we're going to walk through those in the first part of our session here. The first answer they got, over half the people said that the struggle I have in evangelism is fear. I'm, I'm just afraid to do it. Over half the respondents noted fear. Uh, I'm convinced if they'd ask all the respondents to list their top three, fear would have been on everyone's list. But not number one answer, fear. 25% said, I don't know how to witness. I, I don't witness because I don't really know how. That's why I'm coming to this training. Others said, it's apathy. I, I know I should have a burden for my non-Christian co-workers, neighbors, friends, but quite frankly, sometimes I just don't. Others said, it's introspection. First, I need to get my own life in order. I remember one man telling me, if, if I walked across the street to try and witness to my neighbor, I would get laughed off his porch. Sometimes we think, well, my own life isn't perfect. Who am I to share Christ with someone else? And then the barrier of busyness. I, I can't ever find the time. We're, we're so busy. All of these time-saving devices that, that we have that are supposed to save us time. I wonder, I, I try and remember back what life was like before email. I, I, I'm sure I had time to do other things, but I get over 100 emails every day, and it takes time to go through and answer those. So how do you make time to connect with unbelievers? And then a, a final barrier, the barrier of giftedness. I don't have the gift of evangelism, therefore do I need to witness. So jump from your notes from page 2 over to page 5, and I want us to just walk through these six different barriers and just say a few words about each of them. So I believe it's bottom of page four and top of page five, the first breaking the barrier of fear or I'm afraid to witness. I think one way we break this barrier is to recognize that in struggling with fear, we're not alone. Think about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter two as he's writing back to the church at Corinth. He says, when I came to you, when I was first with you, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Who's writing those words? It's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to be afraid, and yet he also knew what it was to depend on the Lord, to trust in Him. The very first time I had the opportunity to meet Billy Graham, I had about an hour's notice that I was going to get to spend an hour with Mr. Graham. So I racked my brain all these questions that I want to ask him. When I met him, my mind went blank. I could barely remember my own name. This man who I so respected and prayed for for years, so looked up to. But as we're spending this hour, I'm thinking, I must ask him a question. The only question I could think of was, Mr. Graham, do you ever get nervous in personal evangelism? I'm not talking about when you're preaching in a stadium of 100,000 people, but just when you're sharing the gospel one-on-one, -on -one, do, do you ever get nervous? He looked at me like that was the stupidest question he'd ever been asked in his 40-plus years of ministry at that time. He said, of course. He said, who doesn't? He said, in fact, if I didn't feel a little bit nervous, I would assume I was doing it in my own strength. God allows us to feel nervous so that we will depend upon Him. Now, if the Apostle Paul had to deal with fear, Billy Graham had to deal with fear. What, what do you think the odds are that you and I will have to deal with fear? I, I think that's right at 100%. Helpful to know that in struggling with fear, we're not alone. I think a, a second thing that's helpful is to identify exactly what our fears are. Uh, an unknown fear can just be absolutely paralyzing. So, so try and pinpoint exactly what am I afraid of? Some people say, well, I'm... I'm afraid of not knowing enough. I've had people say to me, you know, I'm afraid somebody's going to ask me a question that I can't answer. And I say to that person, you, you don't need to be afraid of that. They go, really? I don't know. No, you absolutely don't. I, I guarantee you it's going to happen. We have five children. I have 
two master's degrees and a PhD in theology. And growing up, my own kids would ask me questions I couldn't answer. Whenever that happened, I'd just stand up straight, clear my throat, and say, go ask your mother. Okay. Only God has all the answers. It's okay to say, I don't know. Now, because some of us uh, may not say that phrase very often, we may need to knock the rust off of it. On the count of three, let's just practice saying together, I don't know. Ready? One, two, three. I don't know. Everybody still breathing? Anybody need CPR? Okay. It's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that question. Let, let me try and find out. Let me do some research and get back to you. Uh, a second source of fear is, is the fear of failure. Notice I put failure in quotation marks because when you share the gospel with someone, regardless of their response, you haven't failed. I love the definition of evangelism that Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade coined. He said, Successful witnessing is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. Fear of failure. Some people say, well, I'm, I'm afraid I'll do more harm than good. Let's just analyze that for a second. Anytime someone says that to me, you know, I, I really want to share Christ with my coworker, but, but I'm afraid I'll do more harm than good. I'm, I'm afraid I'll push them away. My immediate response is that that's not your problem. The fact that you're concerned about being insensitive means that you're a sensitive person. It's a person who never even gives that a thought that might be the bull in the china shop. But the person who says, I, I don't want to come across as offensive, you're not going to come across as offensive. Now, the gospel is offensive, but you don't have to be. Failure is not sharing. When we share, we're successful. Fear of, and then the, the third fear, fear of rejection. I, I think that's probably our most common fear. We, we want to be liked by other people. Now, no, one, no one wants other people to hate them, to look down on them. If, if you absolutely do not give a rip what other people think about you, then you're psychotic. Okay? We're, we're relational beings. Well, what other people think matters, but there's something that ought to matter more, and that's their eternal destiny. So let's talk about the sources of fear. The, the first source of fear is Satan. Well, we read in Romans chapter 8 that Satan uses a spirit of fear to keep us in bondage. Fear is one of Satan's greatest weapons. He, he uses it like shackles to keep believers in bondage. Uh, a second source of fear, and then this is the positive source of fear, and that is uh, a recognition of the enormity of the task. We're, we're talking about spiritual things here. As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2, who, who is adequate for these things? None of us are. This is the healthy sense of fear that drives us to depend upon the Lord. A recognition, God, I, I can't do this in my own strength. I have people say to me all the time, I, I just don't feel adequate to do evangelism. And you know my response to that? I, I just grab by the shoulders and I say, that's great. That's wonderful. You are exactly where God wants you to be. Because God doesn't accomplish His purposes through people who think they have it all together. He accomplishes His work through those who know they are weak and depend upon His strength. And then the, the third common source of fear and, and probably the, the greatest insight that God gave me as I, as I worked through trying to answer uh, these different uh, barriers is that we really have too great a focus on ourselves. If, if I don't share with someone because I'm afraid of what their reaction might be, he, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that person's opinion of me what that person thinks of me is more important than their eternal destiny. Now, even as I say those words out loud, I say, I don't believe that. Jesus said, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? The most priceless thing in the world is someone's soul. And yet sometimes we act as if our reputation, what people think about us, is weightier than a person's eternal soul. So, 
How do we apply proper responses to fear? Well, first to recognize some fear is normal and even helpful. It, it forces us to depend upon the Lord. When, when we are in an attitude of dependence on the Lord, that is a beautiful place to be. That's where God wants us to be, in constant dependence upon Him. A second thing to note is that most of our fears are ungrounded. We think people are going to respond negatively and, and hostile. You know, most people don't. Now, you, you'll have the rare exception. Uh, I have knocked on tens of thousands of doors in my life. That, that's not uh, a preacher's exaggeration. I've been involved in three church plans. I spent three summers just going around knocking on doors, talking to people. I, I've knocked on tens of thousands of doors. You know how many doors I've had slammed in my face? One. I have to tell you this story quickly. We, we were planting a church in Abilene, Texas, out on the east side of Abilene, near Abilene Christian University. And my wife and I were out in the neighborhood knocking on doors, knocked on one door, a man answers the door. What? Uh, good morning, sir. My name is Tim Booker. This is my wife, Sharon. We're, we're here in the neighborhood seeing if you think there might be an interest in a Bible study in this neighborhood. This man said, well, who would teach this little study? Well, he was making an assumption there. I hadn't said it was going to be a little study. For all he knew, we were going to start in Genesis 1 and go all the way through Revelation 22. But I ignored that, and I said, well, my wife and I would. And he said, and who are you? I said, as I said, my name's Tim Booker. This is my wife, Sharon, and I'm a Master of Divinity student at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. This man said, well, I have taught New Testament Greek at Abilene Christian University for 18 years. And I'm not interested in your little study. And he slammed the door in our face. I've knocked on tens of thousands of doors. The only door I've ever had slammed in my face was by a Greek professor who didn't know the meaning of the word agape. <laughs> Most of our fears are ungrounded. Most people are not going to respond negatively. Third, fear doesn't disqualify us or excuse us. You see in Scripture, whenever someone says, Lord, I'm afraid, what does he say? Oh, okay, never mind. I'll get somebody else. No, he says, trust in me. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And then 2 Timothy 1.7 talks about God's resources to deal with fear. God's not given us a spirit of timidity, a spirit of cringing fear but of power, of love, of, of discipline, or sound mind. When we look to the Lord, He gives us the strength to overcome our fears. Next, breaking the barrier of ignorance, or I don't know how to witness. few insights on that. First, we need to make sure that we know the message. Sometimes when people say, I don't know how to witness, what they're saying is, I'm not sure what the gospel message is. So it's important that we first know the message. But second, making sure we know a method. The famous Chicago evangelist D.L. Moody was once approached by a woman, very critical, and she said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. D.L. Moody said, you know, there, there are some days I'm not overly fond of, of my approach myself. What, what method do you use? She said, oh, well, I don't have a method. Moody said, well, I like my method a whole lot better than I like yours. If you don't like the way that other people are doing evangelism, that's fine. Don't, don't approach it in that way. Find a method that works for you. And then third, take advantage of training opportunities. Now, this is a classic example of preaching to the choir. I'm encouraging those of you who are taking advantage of a training opportunity to take advantage of training opportunities. But Continue to do that. I, I take advantage of every opportunity that I can. I've been sharing my faith for over four decades. Started as a brand new believer. I, I tell people I learned to share my faith as a brand new Christian before I discovered that most people don't do that. But most Christians don't evangelize. Isn't it isn't exciting to be around a new believer. They, they don't know enough to be quiet. They just want to tell everyone about Christ. Such a joy. 
So take advantage of training opportunities and then simply begin where you are. Journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. People will look at me and say, well, well, Tim, you're, you're the Billy Graham professor of evangelism. You, you worked with Billy Graham. You've received all this help and training. This is easy for you. I'm, I'm not you. I say, actually, it's not. I, I grew up very much an introvert. On the introverted side of introvert, I, I was a wallflower. Very shy. If you had told me back in high school that I would one day be a pastor and a professor, I wouldn't have known whether to laugh or cry. That is nowhere on my radar. I hated being up in front of people. But when I met Christ, he put in me a burning desire that others would know him as well. And so I began taking tiny baby steps. And every tiny baby step I took, God met me there to the point of this introverted Kansas farm boy can now stand up in front of people and speak or communicate one-on-one -on -one with people. I, I say that without any false sense of humility that if God could take what I was and turn me into a witness, he can do that for anyone. You don't have to have an extroverted personality to be an effective witness. Begin where you are. Third, breaking the barrier of apathy or I lack the desire to witness. Uh, the real problem is, is that we, we sometimes lack a heart of compassion. I'm reminded our, our uh, fourth daughter uh, just had her uh, 28th birthday. When she turned 17, what, what she wanted for her birthday was to get her ears double pierced. Now that's way out of my lane, that's, that's out of my, my zone. So I asked my wife, are, are we cool with ears double pierced? My wife goes, we're, we're cool with that, okay. So I agree to take my daughter to get her ears pierced. I think we'll head over here to Claire's at the mall, in and out in 15 minutes, take her out for a nice birthday lunch. She says, no dad, I, I wanna go to this tattoo parlor on Bardstown Road, because that's where her friends had gotten their ears double pierced. So I take her there. Well, it was quite an experience. There was a long line there at the piercing station, about 20 people waiting to have different body parts pierced. And I'm begging my daughter. I say, let's go to the mall. Let's go to Claire's. I will take you anywhere you want to go out to eat. I'll take you to Ruth Chris Steakhouse for lunch. <laughs> you have the most expensive steak on the menu. No, Dad, I really want to get it done here. So. What do I do because I'm sinful and selfish? I start to pout, right? Here, here's an hour of my life that's going to be wasted. And while we're standing there in line, a woman comes walking up in the line behind us. Now, best way I know how to describe her appearance, imagine a woman running full speed through Lowe's department store, falling face first into a bucket of nails. That would be the best description of this woman. She had piercing her eyebrows all around her ears, her lips, her tongue, her nose, even piercing under her chin. My, my first reaction was one of amazement. She's got to have incredibly strong neck muscles. How, how does she hold up all of that weight? And then, then I began to do analysis. I, I wonder if this woman ever flies. I mean, she'd have to get to the airport four hours ahead of her flight, take all that metal out, put it in the tray, go through the metal detector, put it all back on. And, and then my heart began to be critical. Instead of having compassion on this woman, I began to be critical. Well, why would she do this to herself? My thoughts were interrupted by my daughter's voice. Krista said to this woman, uh, Looks like a long wait today. And the woman said, oh no, it'll go quickly. That was the voice of experience. Doesn't take long to poke a hole in somebody. My daughter said, well, while we're waiting, would you like to talk? She goes, sure, sweetheart. What do you want to talk about? My daughter said, why don't we talk about God? And this woman with her arms crossed looked at my daughter and said, sweetheart, what would God want with someone like me? My daughter said, yeah, it's really a good question. Let, let me answer that question as the Bible answers it. Now, at that moment, I've got these dueling banjos of emotion in my heart. Part, part of my heart is so proud that my 17-year-old daughter, she's not yet an adult. 
I've got to sign the form so they can poke a hole in her ear. It's a medical procedure. She's a minor. She's not old enough. She's not an adult yet. And yet she sees this woman and has compassion. But the other half of my heart, I'm so disgusted with myself. It's like, Lord, I'm sorry. When, when am I going to mirror the heart of Jesus? When Jesus saw the sinful multitudes, he felt compassion for them. Not criticism, not condemnation, but compassion. We develop compassion as we spend time with our Lord and reflect what's on his heart, which is compassion for people. Fourth, the barrier of introspection, or first, I uh, need to get my own life in order. I know first here, God is not looking for perfect witnesses. That means we all qualify. In fact, I'll make this even more clear. According to the Bible, when do we become sinless? When, when do we achieve sinless perfection? When does that happen? In heaven, right? How much evangelism is done in heaven? None. Now, you may have never had a course in logic before, but I think you can put those two things together. That means every bit of evangelism that is ever done is going to be done by imperfect people. And that means you qualify, and that means I qualify. A second thing I note, a person who's struggling in one or more areas of his or her life can be a powerful witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. The man who had the greatest impact on me in college was a C student, average student, struggled in school, struggled in life. But I saw how he handled those struggles in life. He handled them with a peace and with a grace and with a joy. And that drew me to want to know what, what made this guy tick. We think, well, my life has to be all together before I can witness to others. Actually, in the midst of much of our pain and struggle is when people can truly see Christ magnified in our lives. Third, we need to distinguish between God's role and our role in evangelism. It's our role to share. It's God's role to bring conviction and change hearts. We can't change anyone's heart. I know, fourth, if you know your life is out of line, then do what it takes to get back in line. Somebody says, well, I, I can't cross the street to witness to my neighbor or I'd get laughed off the porch because I haven't exactly lived a very Christian life in my neighborhood. Well, the Bible answers that with a simple one-word answer. Repent. Acknowledge. I, I haven't lived the life that I should. I, I need to turn around and start seeking to do that. And I note, fifth, that beginning a life of witnessing will actually bring spiritual growth. Any of you had the privilege of traveling to the Holy Land? Any of you made it there? Okay. I, I was actually there a year ago, right? Right at this time. My, my first trip, my wife had been before, but my first trip. If you've all traveled over there, you've been to the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. They're, they're very different bodies of water. Now what makes them different is not the input. Both have fresh water input. Sea of Galilee teeming with life. To this day, one of the best fishing lakes in the world. But that fresh water flows out of the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River, into the Dead Sea. Now, why is it called the Dead Sea? Because there's no life in it. Why is there no life in it? it? It has fresh input. Well, it's because there's no output. And that fresh water comes in and it sits and it soaks and it sours. One of the best ways to increase our own spiritual growth is to have output. Because if we don't have output in our Christian life, we'll be like the Dead Sea. We'll sit and soak and sour. Uh, years ago, a friend of mine was traveling through Dallas, Texas late one night. He lived in Oklahoma. He's traveling through Dallas about 10 at night. He looks at his watch and says, well, if I keep going, I can be home by 2 in the morning. But I'm in Dallas, Texas on Saturday night. I've never been to First Baptist Dallas. I've never heard Dr. W.A. Criswell preach in person. Heard him on tape, but never in person. So he checks into a cheap motel, gets up early the next morning, goes. He says, I wanted to get right up close. He said, so I sat on the second pew right in front of the pulpit. Got there early. He said, as I'm waiting for the service to begin, 
said, I could tell there was a lady in the pew behind me that was ripping somebody's head off. She was angry at somebody. So he said, I held my bulletin up and pretended I was reading it and kind of turned so I could hear what she was saying. And he said, I realized she was mad at me. Who does this guy think he is sitting in my seat? That's my pew. I've been a member here for 20 years. That, that's my pew. Who does he think he is? And my friend Chuck said he had to bite his tongue because he wanted to turn around and say, ma'am, I'm sorry, but I just don't believe you. I think you're lying through your teeth. There is no way you could have sat in this pew for 20 years, heard God's word preached, and then act like that when a visitor sits in your pew. But Chuck said, I didn't turn around and say that because he said, tragically, I knew she was probably telling the truth. She was like the Dead Sea. Great input. Second pew. Hearing the Bible preached every week for 20 years, but no output. And so she sat and soaked and soured. Breaking the barrier of busyness or I can't ever find the time. Uh, I know, recognize we make time for that which is important to us. But we always have time for what's important to us. When, when we say, I just didn't have time. 99% of the time, if we were honest, we would say, it just wasn't high enough on my priority list to make Time. This is something my wife and I, over the years, you know, just try and encourage and challenge each other. She asked me to do something a few months ago, and she asked me about it again yesterday. Where have you gotten that done? And I started to say, I haven't had time, but that isn't true. So what I had to say is, sweetheart, I'm sorry, that hasn't been high enough on my priority list to get it done, but it just moved to the top of my priority list and it will be done in the next half hour. We, we make time for that which is important to us. Allowing God to develop in us a proper perspective on time and eternity. Realizing that this life is just the first inch of the yardstick. You know, we, we, we think that this life is long and, and certainly 2020 COVID this year seems like an eternity, right? But no matter how long we live, even if we live to be 100, that, that's just like a, a dot on the spectrum of all eternity. What we're doing now, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So living for eternity. Realizing that only people are eternal. All this stuff. C.S. Lewis noted that our world today is like a giant department store where Satan has come in and mixed up the price tags. We think stuff, we think toys are valuable. So we spend all of our time and energy to, to get stuff. We think stuff's valuable and, and we think people aren't that valuable. C.S. Lewis said, Satan has switched the price tags and is deceiving us into thinking that stuff is valuable. Stuff is stuff. People are eternal. And then just some, some practical time management helps. Start trying to do two things at once. Well, what is it that you already enjoy doing and, and how can you incorporate a lifestyle of witnessing in that? One of the things I enjoy doing is playing golf. After 10 knee surgeries, it's about the only sport that I can still do. And that's how I'm able to connect with unbelievers. You know, unbelievers like to play golf too. And, and have an opportunity to build friendships and build relationships. And I've had the privilege of baptizing men that I first met on the golf course and just, just built a friendship with something I already enjoy doing. I was teaching a workshop like this some years ago and my wife had traveled with me, it was out of town, and on, on the drive back home she said, sweetheart, the, the Lord really spoke to me tonight. She's very serious. And I said, well, that, that's great. What, what did you sense he was saying? And she said, you know, when you were talking about trying to combine something you already do with witnessing, it was, it was like the Lord was just whispering in my ear, evangelistic shopping! Well, what can I say? And my wife has, over the years, 
as she meets someone, she'll say, hey, why, why don't we go to the mall together? And they'll shop till they drop and then sit down for a cup of coffee. And over that cup of coffee, my wife will have the privilege of talking about Christ to her new friend. And then breaking the barrier of giftedness, or I don't have the gift of evangelism. I, I simply note that even if evangelism is a gift, there, there's some debate as to whether or not Ephesians 4 is talking about gifts or an office. But, but even if it is a gift, it's also clearly a command. We know there's a gift of giving, right? The Bible's very clear about that. But even those of us without the gift of giving are called to be stewards. We're, we're called to support the Lord's work. We know there's a gift of serving. It's, it's listed right there in the text. But whether or not we have the gift of serving, we're all called to serve. It's the same thing with evangelism. Even if evangelism is a gift, it's also clearly a command. Here's the perspective I think we need. Let me give you a little quiz. I'm a teacher, so I like to give quizzes. This can be a very simple quiz. It's really not a trick question. If there is a woman here in Louisville who assists doctors at Baptist East Hospital, what do we call her? Not a trick question. A nurse, yes, okay. See, that was so easy. Call her a nurse, right? Suppose that this woman gets on an airplane and goes to the Philippines. What do we call her then? A medical missionary. Why do we not call her a medical missionary here? Why does she not see herself as a medical missionary here? Years ago, I was at Elmbrook Church uh, just outside of Milwaukee in Wisconsin, Stewart and Jill Briscoe, pastoral team there. And I went up there just for a visit. This was a church that was really impacting the community. And I discovered part of the secret as I was waiting in the, the line at the end to, to meet the Briscoes. Overheard a conversation between two women. One said to the other, what do you do? And this woman said, I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ on mission for him, cleverly disguised as an emergency room nurse. And I thought, that's it. That's the perspective. That, that's why that church is impacting people. So I, I encourage people in our congregation, when someone asks them, what do you do? Well, I'm, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ on mission for him, cleverly disguised as a second grade teacher. Cleverly disguised as an accountant. Cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home mom. We have one attorney in our church. Cleverly disguised as a lawyer. No one would have seen that one coming. <laughs> Having that proper perspective that our life isn't really our occupation. Our, our life is to live as a disciple. This just happens to be the occupation that pays the bills so we can live as a disciple. So those are some of the barriers. Those are some of the reasons why we don't witness. Let's look next at some motivations for evangelism. I, I mentioned Dr. John Stott earlier. Here's a, a quote from him. Dr. John Stott says, In evangelism too, we need incentives for evangelism is difficult and dangerous work. It brings us face-to-face -face with the enemy in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Obviously, he's talking here about spiritual warfare. <clears throat> he says, some never begin to evangelize for want or for lack of adequate incentives. Others begin but grow discouraged and give up. They need fresh incentives. So I'd like for us just to walk through a, a passage of Scripture uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through chapter 5, verse 21. I'm just going to read these verses and then say one word about it. This is the flip side. We've talked about why we don't witness. Now let's talk about why should we witness some motivations for evangelism. So first we see we reach out because of an eternal perspective. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through chapter 5, verse 21. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but are the things which are not seen. 
For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Two keys from these verses. First, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul's setting forth here an eternal perspective. Why, why do we labor? Why do we minister? Why, why do we witness? Because we have eternity in focus. We, we don't look at that which we can see, Paul says, this world. What, what we can see with our visible eyes, all this is passing away. Paul says, no, we, we look with spiritual eyes at eternity. And then he summarizes that in chapter 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. First reason we reach out is because of an eternal perspective. Second, because of a deep desire to please God. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. I keep a sign on my desk in my office at home. I have an office in our basement at home. It's the first thing that I'm greeted with every morning. Uh, first thing I do when I get up is get a cup of coffee because not even God wants to talk to me until I've had a cup of coffee. So I grab my coffee and head down to my office and every morning, this morning included, I'm greeted with a sign. It's a little plaque that I have right there on the center of my desk and it simply reads, an audience of one. And I was reminded early this morning, I'm an early riser, I was reminded early this morning that my goal for today, Saturday, September 19th, 2020, is to be pleasing to the Lord. My goal is not to please everyone I come in contact with today. In fact, to please God, I might have to displease people. I have an audience of one that I need to live for today. That, that's a daily reminder for me. I, I need to start each day with that in focus. Otherwise, I will fall into the trap of people-pleasing. And I will live my life just to please others. I, I want to make sure I please the Lord. Third, because we know we will be judged. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, Paul here is not talking about the judgment for salvation, but the judgment for stewardship. He talks about this earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, some believers are going to be saved, but as though by fire, all, all their works were just going to be wood, hay, and stubble. They'll be, they'll be burned up. Paul says, no, I, I know I'm going to stand before God one day, and, and I want to hear that well done, good, and faithful servant. We know that one day we're going to stand before God. Sorry, I'm not keeping up with the PowerPoint here because we know we will be judged. Next, because we understand God's holiness, look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Paul, Paul talks about knowing the fear of the Lord. But because we understand that God is a holy God, His love is a holy love. At the end of the day in judgment, God isn't going to say, just kidding, just kidding, no, no big deal. No, because God is a holy God, sin must be paid for, either by the sinner or by a substitute, by the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we reach out because we understand God takes sin seriously. Next, we reach out because of our love and concern for others. Look at verses 12 and 13. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. 
For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Look, look at those last four words. It is for you. Paul says, why, why do I go through all this hardship? Why, why do I put up with all that I have to put up with as a minister of the gospel? He says, it's, it's for you. It's for you, Corinthians. It's because it's I love you. It's because I care for you. Our love and concern for others. Next, because of the love of Christ. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. I don't know if this was the verse that Isaac Watts was reflecting on when he wrote his great hymn, but, but it certainly fits when he wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, Oh, that, that's a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We reach out because of the love of Christ. Next, we reach out because of the lordship of the resurrected Christ. Look at verse 15. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It, it's so easy to live for ourselves, isn't it? So, so easy to have it all be about us. Years ago when I was serving in a previous church, the church had become very inward focused. Before I came, I was trying to help it regain an outward focus. And so we adopted as our slogan for one year, it is so not about us. We just didn't adopt, it's not about us. We, we capitalized the word so. It is so not about us. And we talked about if, if we're a believer, we come third. God is first, others are second, we are third. It's very different from the lookout for number one that our culture promotes. Well, we, we were beginning to make some progress in that, I thought. And then one Sunday... As I was standing at the back greeting parishioners, a, a woman who had the spiritual gift of criticism uh, actually said something nice to me. She came back and took my hand and said, Pastor, great sermon today. Even though I was inside of our sanctuary, I actually looked up. I expected to see Jesus in the clouds. I, I thought the, the millennium has arrived. She actually said something nice to me. It was followed very quickly, though, with a but. but. But that special music the choir did, that just didn't do anything for me. I, I hope the choir never sings that song again. This is after six months of emphasizing, it is so not about us. So I, I had what I call an Ephesians 4.15 moment, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. I, I just reached out and I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, Bertha, why does it have to be all about you? I'm smiling. I said, how, how do you know God didn't intend that special music for the couple seated in the pew in front of you who are struggling in their marriage, trying to decide do they want to continue to be husband and wife or, or for the man in the pew behind you who's going to find out at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning whether or not he still has a job. Bertha, why does it have to all be about you? Well, she, she received that rebuke. She blinked a couple of times and she goes, well, Pastor Tim, I think I got two sermons today for the price of one. <laughs> I think she did too, but it's easy for us to fall into that trap, isn't it? That it's all about us. It is so not about us. It's ultimately about God and His glory. Second, it's about others. We come third. Next, because of the promise of a life that can be changed. Look at verses 16 and 17. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. One of Paul's motivations was that he realized that anyone that heard the gospel could be transformed by it. And 
How did Paul know that? Well, he'd experienced it, right? Was Saul of Tarsus exactly candidate number one to become a Christian? No. He's there at the stoning of Stephen, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8. He's on the road to Damascus to harass and persecute Christians, but God stops him in his tracks, and Saul the persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, becomes Paul the apostle. That's the power of the gospel, the power of transformation. Something I'm constantly saying to the students at the seminary is never say no for someone else. It's so easy for us to do that, isn't it? We, we assume that person would never be interested, and so we say no for them. But let's stop saying no for other people. Never say no for someone else. And then I note next, because of God's amazing plan to let us be involved, look at verses 18 through 20. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, notice who that us is. He's not talking here about apostles. He's talking about believers. If you're a believer, you've been called to ministry, to the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What's the word of reconciliation? The gospel. So what's the application? Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you realize that you're an ambassador? What's an ambassador do? An ambassador doesn't create a message. An ambassador faithfully represents the entity that has sent that ambassador. We are ambassadors for Christ, representing His kingdom. Isn't it amazing that God allows us to do that? That we actually have the privilege of playing a part in seeing people's lives transform. It's staggering. It's amazing. Then I know finally, because of the wonder of it all, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I've, I've labeled this point the wonder of it all. Uh, some of you may know the name Gypsy Smith. Gypsy Smith was an evangelist before Billy Graham and preached well into his 80s. And, and someone asked him, Gypsy, when, when are you going to retire? Gypsy Smith started preaching as a teenager in England through the Salvation Army. Pre preached the gospel for eight decades. Gypsy, when are you going to retire? And Gypsy says, never. He said, uh, I don't see retirement in the Bible. He said, besides, I get up each morning and I reread 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I say, Gypsy, you have got to spend today telling that to people. That is great news. And so I do. And then I go to bed and tomorrow I get up and reread that verse. He said, why am I never going to stop sharing this? Because I've never lost the wonder of it all. I, I think sometimes we lose the wonder of it all. I mentioned uh, the joy of being around new believers. We, we have a relatively new believer in our church. He actually came to Christ almost two years ago now. But Denise has still not gotten over the fact that Christ loved her and saved her. Denise came to Christ at the age of 50. And if you were to take almost any list of sin, she probably could have checked every single box. Her life was an absolute wreck. But through an outreach of our church, she got connected with some of our people. We were able to introduce her to Christ. And, and Denise's life has been transformed. Well, she still gets a little excited during worship. Because we're singing about Christ's love and she says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. She, she's not gotten under over the wonder of it all. 
but I, I have a, a man in our church. He, he's the keeper of the traditions. Every church has a keeper of the traditions. And this man came to me last year and he says, Pastor, I've got a concern. He's always got a concern. He said, uh, we need to do something about Denise. You need to talk to her. She's, she's getting carried away. And I said to this man, I, I asked him, I said, uh, Bill, how, how long have you been a believer? I said, 50 years. He stopped and thought for a minute. And he said, yeah, I came to Christ in the army. Yeah, right at 50 years. I said, well, you know, I, I've been a follower of Christ for 40 years. Bill, shame on you and shame on me that we're not more like this. Denise hasn't lost the wonder of it all. Some of us that have known Christ a long time, maybe it's kind of become old hat. It's not that great of news anymore. We, we need to recapture the wonder of it all. So that brings me to the final point on, on that session, and that is the importance of a daily walk with Christ. I, I think Matthew 12, 34 may be the most significant verse in the Bible when it comes to witnessing. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So Jesus would say if, if we're struggling with our speech and talking about him, that, that's really not a speech problem, that's really a heart problem. I, I think the best way I know how to illustrate this is uh, with grandparents. Have you all seen the late night infomercial? It's, it's a man that has a three DVD set. It's a training program for grandparents. Uh, the first DVD is how to overcome the fear of talking about your grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Second DVD is how to bring up the topic of grandchildren in everyday conversation. You, you all seen this? Three DVDs for $99. You haven't? You know why you haven't seen it? Because it doesn't exist and it never will. Right? Why do grandparents talk about their grandchildren? Because Matthew 12, 34 is true. Our mouth speaks out of that which fills our heart. Think about the, the group of ladies that were talking. One lady had dominated the conversation the whole hour, and she finally stopped, and she said, I, I'm so sorry. I, I, I know I've just done nothing but talk about my grandchildren. I, I need to allow you ladies a, a chance to talk. So tell me, what do you think about my grandchildren? <laughs> See, I, I get that. Having 10 grandchildren now, I, I totally get that. Nobody has to twist my arm to get me to talk about my grandchildren. My mouth simply is speaking out of that which fills my heart. And Jesus said it should be the same thing in witnessing. If, if we're struggling with talking about Jesus to others, it, it may mean that our heart is not filled to overflowing with love for Christ. And so that needs to be the starting point, not working on our speech per se, but working on our heart. So let's continue. We're going to take a break here in, in just a few minutes, but I want to go ahead and at least start the next session. As we go, we lift up our eyes. The, this, this goes back now to page uh, three, uh, bottom of page two and top of page three. Identifying lost people in your world. And, and there's a diagram here, and this is designed to be sort of a, a worksheet here. So I, I just want you to take just a few minutes, and as I walk through these different concentric circles, just jot out to the right of this diagram the names of some people. Oscar Thompson, in his book, Concentric Circles of Concern, notes that or he argues that the most important word in the English language is the word relationship. That God designed us as relational beings and, and he's already created numerous relationships in our life. And Oscar Thompson noted, when some people think about evangelism, they think about witnessing to person X, right? That, that total stranger. And Oscar Thompson said that is evangelism and we need to be prepared to, to speak a word to person X. But God has already sovereignly, providentially put people in our life. People we already know who don't know Christ. So just starting in the center with ourselves, think about your immediate family. 
in anybody in your immediate family or the next circle relatives who don't know Christ, you, you would be a rare family if everybody in your immediate and extended family knew Christ. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I have three sisters. They all know the Lord. But I have one brother-in-law who doesn't. My oldest sister married uh, an unbeliever. And he is the first person that I've prayed for every day the past 40 years. First person I pray for. We try and schedule our vacations going back home in a time when he's going to be around. I, I care about him because he is family. So who, who in your family doesn't know Christ? They, that would be the first people we pray for every day. Moving beyond that to close friends. Who, who are friends that God has given you? Friends that maybe you've known for years, and, and they know you go to church, they know you're religious, but, but you've never really had a conversation about the gospel. We're, we're going to talk uh, after our break about some ways to have that conversation. So who, who might be close friends? Or, or the next category, neighbors. People that live in your neighborhood, your, your neighbors. You, you know, according to Acts chapter 17, you're not in the neighborhood you're in by accident. Acts 17, as Paul is speaking there in Athens, he says, God has determined the place of people's habitation. In other words, you don't live where you live by accident. Your neighbors aren't your neighbors by accident. It's part of God's providence. Or what about business associates, people that you work with, maybe eight hours a day? Who, who in that circle doesn't know the Lord? Or even acquaintances. The difference between an acquaintance and person X. An acquaintance is somebody that you know, you, you don't know them well, but you know them. They're not a total stranger. They're not person X. This can be the person who cut your hair. I just got a haircut uh, earlier this week. And I've been going to the same place now for about 15 years. The, the very first time I went into the barber shop there and... Uh, Michelle cut my hair I began just talking to her about Christ and she saw where it was going and she sort of bent down and whispered in my ear I'm, I'm a Christian but the other ladies in here aren't so Michelle and I have Bible conversations every time I go in for a haircut I'll come in and sit down for a haircut and she will ask me a Bible question and she won't use her inside voice she talks loud enough so that everybody else in the barber shop can hear, even with the TV on. They always got the TV station on to the country music station. Uh, so there's always country music in the background. And so Michelle will go, well, uh, Pastor Tim, what, what do you think Jesus meant when he said this? And I'll answer her again, not using my inside voice. Well, Michelle, I, I think this may be what he meant. And so... We now have this sort of tag team opportunity to communicate the good news to others while we're there. Michelle's an acquaintance. I see her once a month, except for COVID. Had to cut my own hair during COVID. I didn't even want to leave the house. That, was, that did not go well. Uh, so who, who are acquaintances? And then obviously person X. So just, just jot down some names and, and after our break, we're going to uh, talk about some practical ways to share with these individuals. A couple other things and then we'll break. The, the second thing to do then is to pray. I, I noticed there in parentheses the phrase prayer triplets. Prayer triplets was something that the Billy Graham Association used for years. They actually learned it during one of their crusades in England in the 1950s. What a prayer triplet is, is you have a group of three Christians who come together and they each have the names of three non-Christians that they want to see come to faith. So you have three Christians meeting once a week, either in person or by electronic means, and they pray for these nine people. Billy Graham Association learned about this because the crusade coordinator there in one of the England crusades in the 1950s set this up. And so six months before the Billy Graham crusade was to happen, 
they formed these prayer triplets throughout London. Can you guess what happened? Some of these prayer triplets saw all nine of the people on their list come to faith before Billy Graham even set foot in England because they were being prayed for and because these Christians now were sensitive to spiritual opportunities that they had. So simply begin praying for others and having others join you in praying for them. There's a website here I want to introduce you to if you're not familiar with it. It's blesseveryhome.com. This is a website that was put together by some Christian businessmen that they want this to be a blessing to the church. And if you will log on to that website and put in your address, it will map out your neighborhood for you and it will tell you who your neighbors are, you know, their, their street address, give you their name. It's, it's an amazing, you know, all this is public knowledge, right? Census Bureau, housing sales, all of that data is out there. They just put it together in one place. So every morning I get an email from blesseveryhome.com with the names and addresses of four of my neighbors so that I can specifically pray for them. It's a great way to get to know who your neighbors are. Maybe you've lived in this neighborhood for a while and you don't really know the people that live two houses down or uh, across the street on the other side of the street. This helps map it out. So blesseveryhome.com enables you to pray for your neighbors. And then build relationships and seek opportunities to serve. If you serve people, if you show the love of Christ to people, you, you will have opportunities to be able to talk to them about the Lord. So lifting up our eyes. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to the disciples, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. Well, why do you think Jesus gave that admonition to the early disciples and through them gives that admonition to us? Why, why the admonition to lift up our eyes? Well, because left to ourselves, where's our focus? It's, it's on ourself. It's on our world. It's on our needs. So every day we're called to lift up our eyes. See, see the people around us who don't know the Lord. How, how can we begin to pray for them? How can we serve them with the hopes of pointing them to faith in Christ? So I'm going to pause there. Let, let me do this uh, before we take a break. Any questions about what we've talked about so far? Anything that's not clear? Anything that you'd like to ask a question about before we break? Anyone? No? Okay. Well, here is your uh, uh, reward for making it through session one. Uh, this is uh, the booklet that I wrote, uh, Overcoming Walls to Witnessing. Uh, it summarizes what we went through in the, the very first part of that, but in uh, much greater depth. So I have uh, six copies of this. So, Pastor, I'll let you uh, uh, distribute those. Uh, I know George already has one. So, I have one. Okay. But uh, uh, you can, if you want to go ahead and distribute those and uh, let's take a break uh, a stretch break if you want to go out and get a breath of fresh air uh, let's take uh, let's do 10 minutes if you need a restroom break so it's 9 48 I'll, I'll even be generous and give you 12 let's come back at 10 o'clock so we'll start back up at 10 o'clock uh, with session three sharing the good news